0: Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. We pray with me, Lord, uh, thank you so much for all the gifts that you give us, Lord, the gift of technology for all those who are connected with us in spirit, Lord and who are here now. And Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would continue to make us useful for your namesake and your kingdom's sake on this earth, that you would give us new eyes to see your good news, new ears to hear, Lord, and then the, the hearts of love and response to your goodness that can follow. And as you do that, may we cry out, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Amen? You know the word Eucharist? Anybody know what that means? Thanksgiving, right? So we're continuing our series in uh, Corinthians. We're in chapter 5, if you want to follow along at home or here. Some years ago, I um, had a car that was fill the oil, check the gas. Did you ever have those kind of cars? It was gifted to me. And I was at the BP station right by 77 and 82. And I am actually uh, checking the oil. And all of a sudden, I feel great pain in my leg, in my knee in particular. And I look down, and there is a bumper pushing my knee between my bumper and its bumper. And I start screaming, you don't. You actually don't know what sound will come out of your mouth until you actually have it happen. I have some octaves that I never even knew I had, right? I sound like a little girl, you know. I'm (laughs) screaming, and uh, the car is actually moving my car forward. Uh, And finally, the guy, like, stops. I mean, it was only inches, you know, like five, seven inches. But um, finally, he stops And he backs up, and the guy gets out, and he goes, I didn't see you. And of course, I'm thinking, good, because had I known you'd saw me, this would have been, like, really bad intention. And my knee had conformed to the form of the bumper, so it kind of had a funny shape, and I put some weight on it, and it hurt. And I got to ride in an ambulance and all this stuff. But, you know, I was thinking, the guy, he just wasn't looking. Like, I was in one of his blind spots. Actually, he never looked back. I think he just, you know—you ever get in your car and you just know that there's nothing behind you? That's exactly what he did. Um, So I was in one of his blind spots. And when I think about blind spots in the Bible, this picture, this verse from Revelation comes up. In Revelation, you have this section where Jesus is speaking to the churches. And in this one church, he says, hey, you guys, I wish you were warm and healing or cold and refreshing but you're neither so you're, you're lukewarm and it just makes me sick I, I will spit you out of my mouth and then he says you say I'm rich I've acquired wealth I do not need a thing so from their perspective they were fat dumb and happy right but from God's perspective he says but you don't realize Here's your blind spot. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's like, wow. See, this church thought they were one way, but from God's perspective, the only way to truly see things, they they weren't. One one author said that the most common blind spot is believing that others have them, but you don't. I mean, the reality is is we all have blind spots, don't we? And and so we march into this uh, church in Corinth, and they've got a massive blind spot the first few chapters Paul is talking about the fighting that's going on here and then he goes right into this look at these words it's actually reported that there's immorality among you and an immorality of such a kind that doesn't exist even among the Gentiles some will say pagans and that someone has his wife's father you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst so paul is saying guys in the roman law it says what's going on in your church shouldn't take place like the pagan law says it's not right and the jewish law says it's not right but you guys aren't even noticing what's going on here and you need to do something about it you need to remove this guy from your midst They're blind to it. They've got this massive blind spot. And he goes on and he says, For I on my part, though I'm absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. Now this is kind of an interesting concept here. On one hand, there could be this mystic sweet communion that when they're worshiping and the presence of the Lord is there, Paul is also in god's presence with them and i believe that's true and maybe in a in a more significant way than we typically experience but it could also be explained like this have you ever said to somebody my heart goes out to you or you know i'm with you in spirit and that could also be what paul means here kind of like i when you're there i'm there in spirit and he says in the name of the lord jesus when you're assembled i'm with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus there's one other place in the Bible where Paul uses this phrase hand him over to Satan it's a it's a funny thing isn't it you read this and you wonder what is he talking about I mean when was the last time you heard me say you know Jim, that person you're talking about, I think you need to deliver them to the devil for a while. Jim would look at me like, What? What's he talking about? You know, well, what is he talking about? I mean, what does this even mean to hand someone over to Satan? I, I think if you understand when Paul writes about conversion and you start seeing how Paul describes conversion, this is how we describe it too, but maybe we don't always think in these terms, Like in Colossians, he says, you were rescued from the dominion of darkness. That's like a kingdom, isn't it? From the kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom of the son he loves. Or in Ephesians, we read this. For you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord Live, walk as children of the light. And when Paul was converted, I think this is the most telling passage. The Lord says to him, when he's like, who are you? He's like, I'm Jesus. And he says, I'm sending you to open the eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. And look at this. From the dominion, the authority, the kingdom of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sent. Sanctified by me in faith so when Paul sees conversion he sees him. you are under one kingdom Satan and now you're under another kingdom God and, and turning him over to Satan is actually saying this person is living in such a way that that Satan is is active in his life just let him go there's a scripture uh, in Romans where Paul says God gave them over And I really think this is what, what, not Paul, yeah, Paul's writing this, but I think what the concept is is, hey, the person has already excommunicated themselves by their actions. Just let them go. Let them go into where they want to go. And why? Why? I think the picture that helps us in our age is kind of something we learn from the 12-step programs. Have you ever heard anybody say I had to hit rock bottom? Like I had, to, I had to hit rock bottom. And what are they saying? Self will run wild, right? We, we, are, we are going our own way, living our own life. We think we're living our own life, but we're actually serving someone, right? We're like in a dominion of darkness. And, and, and that dominion is destroying us. It's running rampant on it. And maybe you can see and remember times where you were in that place of darkness. And even as believers, many times Satan will say, oh, the darkness looks like light. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and he paints his will as good and lovely and God's will as small and restrictive. And maybe you bought the farm a few times even as a believer and you end up going that way and it crushes you and it destroys you and then you come home I couldn't help but think that the prodigal son is a perfect example of being turned over to Satan you remember the story Jesus uh, talks about these two guys prodigal sons but the one, dad, dad I um, would like to have my inheritance early Right? Is this kind of a crazy thing to say? Can you imagine saying that to your mom or your dad? You know, you've got this wealth, and if you were dead, dad, I would have this money. So on one, it, it, I really wish you were dead, and then I could get your money. I mean, that's really what he's saying to his dad, and then the crazy thing is the dad actually gives his inheritance to his wayward son. And, and his son goes off, it says, and squanders his inheritance on ravenous living. Some say prodigal living, wasted living. But basically, he goes out, and I don't know if you've ever had it before, but have you ever thought, if only I can have this, I'll be happy? Do you ever thought, if only I win the lottery, I'd be happy? And then you read about all the lottery winners who go, oh, I wish I never won the lottery because they squander their inheritance on ravenous living, right? I mean, there's different ways. And, and many times we, we fall just like the prodigal son, and he, he gives himself over to everything that he thinks is going to rescue him, to save him, to make him be uh, happy and satisfied. And he ends up destitute. There's a famine. There's external stuff that happens and bad investments. And he finally gets a job on a pig farm. And the Bible says that this guy longed to eat what the pigs eat. Have you ever seen what pigs eat? Like, they'll eat anything. Have you seen the stories of the farmers, pig farmers who have had like a heart attack and fallen into the pig's pen and they they don't find much left? Pigs, it's not good. And this guy is so hungry, so destitute, he's sitting there with pigs and going, their food looks good to me. And it's there in this brokenness that light shines in, and he says, I know what I'll do. The guys who work for my dad are paid better than me. They eat better than I do. He says, I'll just go home and get a job with my dad. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just give me a job so I don't have to want the pig food. And so while he's still a long way off, and he's rehearsing this script, it says his father sees him and has compassion on him. This word compassion comes from a Hebrew word, and I think I alluded to this a couple weeks ago. It's almost like the, the wombiness of God. The Hebrew word, the root is womb. It's like, for, like a woman's womb. And, and uh, sometimes uh, in the New Testament, the, the word uh, literally can be translated his bowels ached. It's, it, it's alluding to that internal feeling that his dad has for him and his dad runs and and if you if you've ever tried to run in a long dress ladies it's not easy is it and guys we really haven't had this experience except I did when I played Jesus in a passion play you got to lift that thing up you got to lift your robe up to get a good stride and the dad did it And doing that, he's exposing his legs and it's embarrassing and a proper man didn't do it, but he did it. He humbled himself and he ran to his son and it says he embraced him and he kissed him. And I imagine the son is like, he's expecting his dad to go, you piece of dirt. I gave you my inheritance. I gave you part of my estate and you wasted it. But That's not his dad, is it? It says he kissed him. And I think... This love and this compassion made the young man's script change. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son, period. The other part of his script was kind of like, make me a hired, I'll, I'll pay you back. There's no quid pro quo here. He's, he's, he can't pay it back. I think the love of the Father has overwhelmed the son. And you know what, the dad, he doesn't stop with a kiss. He doesn't stop with compassion. He's like, clean him up. Put my robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. More than what a family could eat. Kill the fatted calf. My son, who was dead, is alive. Who's lost, is found. And maybe this is your story and this is my story. And maybe you're a believer and you have been deceived by the devil and you've walked and your body, your mind, your heart is has suffered the consequences and you're in the pit and you're like, I wanna come back. And that's the purpose of, of this kind of discipline that was going on of how it was, it was to bring him back in. Now the interesting thing, and I don't wanna stop just with the son, although the son fully applies, I wanna also look at the older brother because I believe both of them are prodigal. One stays home, but he's not home. One goes away from home, but he's not home either. You see, the older brother has news brought to him out in the field. And he's mad. He's spitting mad. He's like, dang it, I live my life for this guy. And this, this idiot son, this stupid son, right, who, who, uh, who, who spends the money on prostitutes, dad throws a party for him? I'm sick of this and the, and the Bible says he won't go into the party and so the father comes out to the older brother and, and he's like look for so many years I've been serving you, I, I've never neglected a, a command of yours. He's a rule keeper, he's a moralist, he knows how to do things right, he's the, he's the dad pleaser and yet you've never given me a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends, but this your son came, who devoured your wealth with prostitutes. And you killed the fatted calf for him. You know, one other point. So if the father divided the wealth, right, and he gave some to the younger brother, and the rest belonged to who? The father, but who ultimately is it going to go to when he dies? The younger brother. So whose calf, who's actually paying for the party? Yeah, the younger brother, it's, gonna, it's costing the younger brother some of his inheritance. because the, the, I'm sorry, the older brother, because the younger brother squandered it. And he's mad. Tim Keller says there's two kinds of people, religious people in the world. And he said uh, they're both kind of part of this cancel culture. He, he says one of them says, you know what the problem with the world is? And this is the older brother. The problem with the world is all those immoral types out there. It's those people. We need to have a church that doesn't have those people. Keep those people out. It's not me. I'm not part of the problem. And then the younger brother, he's the relativist kind of person, not the moralist. And he would say, you know, I'm not the problem. The problem with the world are those condemning types of moralist people. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those judgmental people. You know, they're the problem with the world. But I think true believers will say, you know, I sometimes am like a moralist and I'm sometimes like a relativist, but the reality is is the problem with the world is me. I am arm-wrestling God for control of my life over and over and over again. You see, the root of all our disobedience is the way in which we seek to control our lives and be our own saviors. And you can be a moralist, you can be somebody who does everything right, but you keep God in an arm's length. You're controlling your life, you're controlling your family, you're controlling your job. Like, like you got that, but, but you're still saving yourself. And you can be somebody who goes out and says, oh, I believe all the lies of, of pleasure and everything, and, and, but you're still trying to save yourself. And the root of all disobedience is this continual way that we set up these idols, these ways of saving ourselves. And I think being willing to admit this is the beginning. But why excommunicate the guy? I mean, why kick him out of the church? Why not just fix him? And what is it that we can learn from this chapter? Well, the chapter goes on and says, he says your boasting isn't good. He's like the thing that makes you feel good isn't good. He goes, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump just as in fact, you, uh, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice, wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I don't think we talk too much about leavening. And do, do you guys make your own bread once in a while, maybe a little bit sometimes? And um, I love the smell of bread. But you know, part of what I really like is the yeast smell. You know what yeast is? I think bacteria or a fungus. But either way, whatever that leaven is, the yeast is, it gets it, you put it in with the dough and it doesn't take much. And it starts consuming the sugar. And it gives off carbon dioxide. And it puffs up your bread. You know, and, and, and this, so you go from unleavened to leavened. Hey, let's see if I can get this picture to go. Hmm. Whoops, there we go. Um, so on one side, you got puffed up bread, and the other, you have what we could use for communion, unleavened. And so Paul is saying he's using a Jewish concept here. The Jewish concept was this, that before the Passover, the Jewish people would go and they would do a spring cleaning. Is, do you guys still spring clean? Yeah? My mom was a spring cleaner. And I, I don't know many people, we washed the walls walls of every room in the house. Yes, as a little kid, I had a bucket, I think spick and span in that thing. Not only the windows, the screens, the walls, dusted like crazy, but that was spring cleaning. And you do this every year. And it comes from this. Spring cleaning came from the Jewish custom where they would get rid of all the leaven in the house any kind and just get rid of it and leaven in the old testament represented sin and the idea is is we will work really hard before the passover sacrifice the lamb slain to get rid of all sin they took it really seriously and paul is using this illustration to to help them understand so why excommunicate well, I think when you and I think of our lives, we think like Americans. And in America, we're individuals, right? You are an individual, rugged individualism. And so when you hear about a lump, you say, well, Jim's a lump, Billy's a lump, Darnell's a lump, Isaiah's a lump, like, like we got a bunch of different lumps in a, in a group like this. But you know, that isn't the concept that Paul has. He's like, the church at Corinth is one lump. And and when there's sin in your midst, and this man who's doing a a sin in your midst, he is bringing in leaven that shouldn't be in your lump. Some years ago, I went to India. These these are actually pictures of uh, what I took in India. Look at that doorman. Look at that hotel. I stayed at some of the nicest hotels I've ever stayed at in my entire life. And the reason was, is that it was safe, you know, you were treated well and and you could eat there and not get sick. Uh, uh, And and yet, on the street, like I I took this from Mother Teresa's place in Calcutta from the roof where there's a chapel and you can overlook the street and I just took a couple pictures of people live right there. You know, that guy's just, that's his nighttime place to sleep. And this is, look at the little child. It had more. This family had more on the right than this family on the left. And, and you can just drive down the street and see shacks and people. They, they spend their whole lives on the street. And here I was in this wealthy, it, it, just the dissidence was so difficult. It was eye-opening. But you know what else was eye-opening? This is me with some missionaries. Um, one is a bishop and the other is a missionary. Uh, when, when I would visit these churches there, I remember saying to this one pastor how many attend your church because you know this is what pastors care about right nickels and noses and and how many attend your church and the guy was like i have like i, I can't remember his number but let's just say 38 families or 42 families And i'm thinking how many are in the families like i and he he's, he looked at me like, well, like what a strange question well what's the So when you have all the families together, I mean this is me pushing, when you have all the families together and you add up that number, what is it? He's like, oh, we have, you know, 38 families. He just gave me the same answer. And I could not get him to think like an American. Because they see one lump of dough. They see families. They they he he doesn't he sees the church as one lump, and I'm an American, I see a bunch of individuals. And Paul is writing to these people, and he's like, you guys, your lump has leaven in it, and it's going to ruin everything. And Paul saw excommunication, like, you know, my mom had cancer, and it was this tumor, like, growing in her pancreas, and they actually had to hurt her. They cut the body, they cut out the two left, and then they like reworked how her intestines work and her duct work works, and, and they did this Whipple procedure on her. And the idea was get rid of what's bad, but save the body. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what excommunication is. We love this person so much that we're willing to say, you go, you find your life here, self-will run rampant, And hopefully you'll return but we're gonna have to injure a little bit and cut it out for the health of the whole body he says I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people and this is kind of interesting so Paul says in his previous letter that we don't have a copy of don't associate with immoral people and it seems to me that the people then stopped associating with anybody anybody in the world not Christians but anybody that they deemed immoral and some church people are like that. They, and they give an air of like, I'm better than you. But frankly, Paul says, I didn't mean the immoral people of the world or the covetous or swindlers or idolaters because you'd have to go out of the world. He's like, come on, our world is full of people who need Jesus. You, you rub shoulders with them every day. How will people ever know the Lord if here you are cutting yourself off from everyday people? But he does say, watch out don't hang out with people who call themselves brothers but they're immoral they're covetous they're idolaters they're revilers they're drunkards they're swindlers what is he saying there's leaven in there they haven't cleaned the house and what will happen is these people will continue to influence your life he's saying hey you need to have some standards here what do i have to do with judging outsiders you do not judge, do you not judge those within the church? But those outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? He's saying it's going to kill you. So what can I learn from this and what can you learn from this? You know, I think the first thing is we got blind spots. There are things I don't see about me. There are things you don't see about you. There are places where revelation could apply to you. You see yourself as as fat, dumb, and happy, and God's like, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not you. And we need to say, God, open my eyes. Help me to see myself more clearly. Help me to understand how I'm wired and the temptations that come with how I'm wiring. We, We need to pray for eyes to see. And the other thing is that I think we need to spend time in God's word. Can I say, if I was not preaching through Corinthians, I wouldn't pick this chapter to preach on? I mean, come on. It starts with immorality and it ends with kick the guy out. I would much rather go John 3.16, right? And, and yet, you come to this stuff and you read it and you're like, oh God, I see stuff in my heart. I, I, I see stuff in my heart that's not good. And, and I think what really helps me to see is time in God's word. Right? You, you open up the book. The, the, we say in, uh, in theology when I teach confirmation that the law of God is a curb, a guide, and a mirror. Like it shows us ourselves. I've told this before but i think it's hilarious so i'm a new like pastor at community of hope and we have these voters times where we get together with pastors and lay delegates from churches all around ohio and i think it was every three or four years back then and i i go there with norm pross he pulls in the driveway picks me up takes me uh with him to this conference hundreds of people there Uh, You know, I'm meeting a lot of people for the first time, and uh, I mean, it was a really nice time to meet people. And then uh, we have dinner, and and we come back to the hotel rooms in the evening, and I remember I go into the hotel room, I look in the mirror, and I had forgotten to comb my hair. Like, I had out-of-the-shower hair all day long. Whatever that looked like was not good. But I hadn't looked in a mirror since I got out of the shower. I'm sure I was in a hurry, running around, get all dressed. And I say to Norm, like whether it's the next day or that evening, Norm, like my hair was horrible. Why didn't you tell me? Thought you wanted it that way, right? Because who would have hair that wild without wanting it that way, right? Um, And the scripture is like a mirror, and a lot of times we're just we're having a bad life day. And we read the scriptures, and we're like, oh, Lord, I see this now more clearly. You know, I see it more clearly. And I think we need to ask ourselves, where are the places where we're wrestling control? You know, regularly, I read about fallen leaders, fallen Christians, and it's so easy to fall. And I think it's easy to have kind of a faith where we, like, turn on Jesus and then at times we're like you know I really deserve this I haven't been treated like I should be treated you know I'm uncomfortable in my skin right now and I need to find peace, comfort, satisfaction in some other thing except you and your spirit God and, and we, we take control we, we find other saviors that will rescue us from our bad feelings or what, whatever it is and. I think we just need to be honest with ourselves. Lord, help us. Help us to to get to the root cause of our disobedience and to allow your good news to truly be good in every situation. I think that's where repentance truly happens. And last, I think we need to make our Passover sacrifice personal. It has to be real. I put a picture of a lamb up there because that... That gives us like a cuddly feel. I was talking to a friend of mine who has chickens, and I'm like, you know, after so long, they really stopped laying, so you could kill them and eat them. He's like, you want to come over and kill them for me? Because what? Chickens, hard to kill. I, I get it. And we have a Lamb of God who was our Passover sacrifice that we can know personally. And we can sit with the knowledge that my sin put him on the cross. And we love him because he first loved us. And the more we get in touch with that love, that cross, that work, the more personal it becomes, the more it weans us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that your love endures forever. Turn our hearts afresh and anew today, may our personal relationship with you be something that's renewed today, something that's renewed regularly this week. And Father, we can't do it on our own. We need your Holy Spirit. We need you to give us a fresh and a new wind of your spirit in our, in our lives. And Father, we need to pray part of that prayer that we prayed earlier. Lead me out of temptation. Deliver me from evil. Like each of us, Lord, are your lambs. Shepherd our souls. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.